Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And today I have my friend Jen with me. Jen, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. Good to be yeah. here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Can you uh, catch us up on what's been happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and many, any ministry projects that you want to share or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have a lot of anniversaries that fall within this last week or two. Um, just realized that the other day, my husband and I just celebrated 23 years of marriage. Our church plant turned five. My first book, Enough About Me, that came out with Crossway turned two. And my second book is going to come out within the next uh, couple of days, couple of weeks. So it's kind of a momentous time. Um, life is full and good. We also have four daughters who keep us very busy. Um, so things are great. And I am just grateful to um, be able to serve the Lord in this season. Mm, that's good. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see, you know, I see your posts in school to see, you know, how the Lord is at work and and the church plant and, and those kind of things always very encouraging to, to see. Yeah. That. So humbling. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, uh, you have this book that you just mentioned, cultural counterfeits confronting five empty promises of our age and how we're made for so much more. Can you tell us why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received, please? Absolutely. So I have been in women's ministry now for well over 20 years. And that has just been one of the greatest joys of my life. Um, not only have I been in women's ministry, but I am a woman and I have four daughters. So um, I guess I have been, you know, very much surrounded by women's issues now for over two decades and been able to sort of have a window into the lives of a number of women around the world. And what I have noticed is there are some especially tenacious and antagonistic and winsome idols of our age that have promised women life and really delivered them death. And so I set out to write this book really for two reasons. One, I wanted to sort of pull back the facade on these idols that our culture says we must have, um, that that is the gateway to life, that this is where we'll find joy. I wanted to pull back that facade and expose these idols for what they really are and just offer um, an explanation. There's a lot of sociological data in the book and just help women see the truth behind that sort of shiny surface. But then secondly, I wanted to show women, as the subtitle suggests, that we were made for so much more, that we have a good God who made us and he made us to abide in him and to experience joy and peace in him. So while at once I want it to sort of be a cultural critique, I also want it to be a worship inducing look at um, God's immeasurable mercy and kindness to us. So I'm really hoping that the book does both of those things. Yeah. You know, obviously I'm a guy and I've been in men's ministry, not as long as you've been in women's ministry, but I think this book is just as applicable to men as it is to women. Um, oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'll write an article for men and they're like, well, why didn't you write it just for both? And I'm like, well, the, principles and the teaching apply, uh, you know, no matter what. So I'm like, hopefully you can get something out of it. And I, I think that guys can get something out of this. Uh, so I think that that's, that's really, really good. 
Yeah. Thanks for that feedback. I do wrestle with that. You know, you probably do too with who your audience is. Um, and I am just entrenched in women's ministry. So that's usually who's on my mind when I'm writing and speaking. Um, and I think that's great. I don't feel, you know, um, like that falls short in any way, but also at the same time to know that there's a word in there for my brothers is really encouraging. Yeah. And, and I'll say this, I've said it probably privately, probably out loud too, you know, but you know, women need good theology books. And so you're, I mean, the market is, you know, inundated with bad theology for women, for men too, but sure, especially mm-hmm. for, for women. And so we need more good books. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, uh, you, you're writing about burnout in the book and I think that's, that's really good. Uh, how is burnout a take on the age old problem of idolatry? Yeah, when I was researching for this book, I was actually, you know, I knew that burnout is a problem. I've since before writing enough about me actually well aware of mental health statistics and how dire they are for both men and women, but especially for women. Um, Just the the levels of discouragement, depression, anxiety, and even suicide, they're just through the roof. And that was before COVID. Um, Things have been worsened since the pandemic, but even well before the COVID, before COVID. women are suffering more than ever. And so it's just really concerning. It's really a crisis that I think we need to be um, taking a look at, but burnout, you know, has become more and more popular in terms of just being aware of it. And I was shocked to discover that studies show that the vast majority of millennials in particular experience burnout all the time, like on a daily basis. Um, And it's even a sort of diagnosable medical condition at this point. So I wanted to look at, you know, what's going on now in this cultural moment that's causing burnout. And really at the root of it is that it is idolatry. You know, it's a new take on a timeless issue um, that we have struggled with since Adam and Eve. And that is placing our hope and our trust and our identity in anything other than the God who made us and died to save us. And when we do that, when if we place our identity or our hope in things like our career or our marriage or education or ourselves, we crush that thing because it's not meant to bear that weight. You know, no marriage can sustain all of one person's hope and identity and trust, mm-hmm. no um, career or education or financial stability or person as we put our hope in ourselves can bear up under that weight. And so burnout really is another way to view the age old problem of idolatry. Yeah. I, I, I burned out three times. Uh, I think it was twice in my twenties and just it, a lot of that was just pushing myself, you know, mm. like 15 hour days, 18 mm-hmm. hour days, like how much can you work, you know? And then in my thirties, I was like, wow, that, that yeah, I did it again. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do this again. Like I almost didn't make it back, you know, like to doing ministry. And I'm like, I believe right, it. Right. Yeah. Right. And that is one idol that I look at in the book is just our, looking at our bodies to be productive and able and counting on our own, you know, human fortitude to be as productive as we think we should be. And we just can't bear up under that. Turns out we are human. We are <laughs> finite. We are frail. And so yeah. we have to put our hope in something beyond us. Yeah. Some people think I'm the energizer bunny. I'm like, no, but I only work eight hours a day. You know, mm. I just use those eight hours pretty well. So we we need rest. We do. And if you don't rest, I mean, you just, I get grumpy. And then um, I'm no fun to be around. 
Right. As, as I'm sure everybody is when they get grumpy, but right. You know, I, but uh, it's really good. Well, how did the sexual revelation make sex central and morph it from protecting the Imago Deo? Yeah. So for those listening who aren't familiar with the book, um, I take a deep dive into history in particular since the sexual revolution. I mean, I go, I go way back to the time of Christ and then fast forward. Um, but I take a deep dive into how the sexual revolution really changed. I mean, revolutions change everything. That's why we call them revolutions. And so the sexual revolution in the West really changed how we view ourselves, how we view each other, and how we view God's good gift of sex. So I know that in a podcast and even in that book, we can't really pull back all the layers. You know, it's going to be oversimplifying things a little bit because so many things were converging in that season of life for our nation and for the West in general. But suffice it to say, in those decades, the 1960s, 1970s, we as a people wanted to throw off the shackles of tradition, of institutions, of really millennia long held values and roles and ideas that though we were by, you know, I do not mean to argue by any means that we were perfect at upholding those traditions and values and ideals, but we had an agreed upon set of values and boundaries that we said, these are for our good. These are for our flourishing. You know, sex and marriage is between one man and one woman so that the children who are procreated in that context will enjoy the protection and the provision of both a mother and a father. And we had, um, we had laws, you know, that, that were in place so that sex was not exactly private. It was quite public because these were things that were, um, that our legal system deemed necessary for the flourishing of the family and the flourishing of women and children. And so these things were in place that we, again, didn't implement them perfectly. They were in place for protection and for good. And so in the sexual revolution, when we threw those off and said, you know what, actually these traditional roles and values and ideals are not for our good. They're holding us back. They're keeping us down. What's really good is sex. What happens is, you know, we turn the best gifts into our idols. Mm -hmm. The things that we humans love the most and enjoy the most become our idols the fastest. And that is exactly what happened with sex. And in that particular moment in history, we began to also seek self, really prioritize self over community. And people moved away from their families and moved away from their communities, their villages, their farms, entered urban locations and became really the autonomous self whose you know highest good was found in sex. So we ended up just perverting a good gift into something for selfish gain. And sadly, rather than it being something that is unifying and for the good of humanity, it has become something that people just seek selfishly and end up exploiting and harming one another in the process. Yeah, yeah. As you're talking, I'm, I'm going back to my sociology class and yeah. like 2005 and I'm thinking, yeah, what's a norm? And a norm is, you know, something that, like you just said, it's something that is what what we what we you know is socially acceptable. Well, we know, like you're saying, that that socially acceptable thing has has changed, and then now you know we have another supposed you know quote uh, norm that is so supposedly now socially you know acceptable. I don't think that it's socially acceptable but our society says that it's 
we we would say that it's not socially acceptable right but our society says that it's socially acceptable and so it's just that's just interesting you know like what is a norm and what is normal and what is what what our society deems normal you know we we don't and so i just think that that's a that's a really good thing that you're you're pointing out in the book and and just now so Yeah. And I just, I want to help women and girls understand, you know, we have this cultural idol of sex and we say that, you know, the more sexual partners, the better, um, the more freedom it comes to, you know, when it comes to your sexuality, the better, but the data, the, so the very secular sociological data reveals that the over-sexualization of girls and women is really harmful. It, it absolutely is playing a role in the levels of depression and suicide that we're seeing now. It's tied directly to our um, placing sex and multiple sexual partners on a pedestal where it should not be. So my desire is to reveal that to the readers to show that this is actually not for our good. We are being exploited. Um, let, let us do better as a people. Yeah, that's really good. Well, um, you know, and like what we were just talking about, how how is the Bible's teaching on freedom a better word than the freedom of our culture? Yes. So what I try to communicate over and over in the book is that we have a design and we have a designer. We humans are not here by chance, but we have a good God who created us. And not only did that good God create us, but he went so far as to die to save us. He is immeasurably good and he's immeasurably trustworthy. And so when we recognize that we have a creator and that he created us to abide in him, that is for our flourishing. That is when we thrive is when we abide in the the good God who made us. Um, You know, the scriptures say when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And our greatest freedom is found in acknowledging who God is, what he's like, and what he intended for us in terms of relating to him. Um, you know, I think our culture definitely looks at that as a lack of freedom, but that's, that's the opposite is true. Our greatest freedom comes when we surrender and abide in Jesus. Hmm. That's, that's really good. Really good. Well, you ask a great question on, on page 74. What is the right way to live in a culture that is obsessed with our bodies? And it's a big question. It really is. I mean, I feel like I could have written a whole book on any of these idols, um, that one in particular, but yeah, this is a chapter that talks about our obsession with our bodies. And in particular, I wanted to help the reader just explore how we, um, put our hope in our physical appearance. Um, I think that can be a pitfall for both men and women. I'm speaking specifically to women here, but just the, um, the, the expectation that physical beauty will deliver, um, freedom, joy, wealth, happiness, but not only beauty, also ability. Um, so this conversation goes beyond not just how we look, but what we can do. And if we can be productive members of society. And so I think this idol where, you know, we, if we start out the conversation in beauty, but we ultimately go to productivity, this idol can become pretty dark and sinister really quickly because we, as a people are drawn to those who are attractive. Mm. We're also drawn to those who are able. And so we, I think subconsciously by and large, but also somewhat consciously, we deem lives and bodies that can do more as more valuable than lives and bodies that cannot. 
And so we begin to see this, um, for example, in the elimination of babies with Down syndrome in across the Western world, the quickness of Western parents to test for various, various disabilities in utero, and then to eliminate babies that they predict are going to be born with certain disabilities. So we, we, again, just deem there when the woman is pregnant, like, oh, that's a baby I don't want to have. That's a baby whose life is not worth giving. And then we also see it on the other end of life in terms of this big movement, quote, dignity to die, um, freedom to die, you know, that that movement that allows for those who are suffering to seek the seek suicide with the um, assistance of a physician. Again, we deem these lives that have maybe some kind of terminal diagnosis as less worthy. And we um, seek as a people to eliminate them quicker than God has for them, quicker than the days the Lord has ordained for them. So this idol really is so sinister and we see it in abortion and we see it in assisted suicide. We also just see it in our day to day where we feel like I've had a terrible day because I have not been productive. Um, I am not of value to my church or my family or to society in general, because I didn't complete my to-do list. So in answering the question, what is the right way to live in a culture that is obsessed with our bodies? I want to remind the reader. And I want to remind myself that life and breath and everything comes from God above. These bodies are not our own. They belong to the Lord who made them. And that is incredibly freeing good news. And so our role is simply to steward these bodies. How can I steward the abilities that he's given me, the circumstances in my life, this cultural moment? How might I steward those things for the glory of God and the good of other people? I belong to him and I belong to others. So how can I steward my body, my life, everything for those two things? That's, that's really good. I, I can say that I've been guilty of, of the productivity thing myself. So, you know, Me too. yeah, you know, and just recognizing, you know what, whatever I get done that day is what I get done and it's, and it's okay. But like to your larger point into the larger point, I like this conversation about our bodies and stuff. It's like, I know for, for many men, they, they're just like sucked into the endless trap of viewing women as a, as an object, you know, uh, we will, I don't know that I would say just for their pleasure and, and, and enjoyment, because maybe that's not fair, but they're sucked into that, that allurement of, of that. And I think it's a real thing. And then, you know, that affects a woman. And so I think that what you're, what you're talking about is, is absolutely 100%. It's, it's the biggest issue that I deal with in, in helping men, you know, with probably the number one issue that I deal with is, you know, men engage in pornography. And, and, yeah. it's, and it's tragic, um, you know, and then you get into the sex trafficking aspect of thing and it's just yeah. devastating. Um, so yeah, you're, you're everything that you're hitting on. I'm like, mm -hmm, yep, that's, yeah. that's good. Yep. It's good stuff. Well, in what way don't we, maybe, maybe the, the word value isn't the, isn't strong enough. What way don't we have the right understanding of, uh, sex really? Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one of the most tenacious idols of our age. And it's just the, the belief that um, self-fulfillment cannot be realized without multiple sexual encounters or multiple sexual partners. And I think even this particular way of thinking has even seeped into the church um, because I just see 
you know, a lack of value for celibacy and just encouraging our singles in their calling to singleness and to celibacy. Um, I just think it's an area that the church has maybe somewhat avoided or bought into some of the cultural air that we're breathing that you cannot be a fulfilled human being without sex. Um, but definitely outside the church, you know, the, in, in secular spaces, the belief is that, you know, the more sex, the better, the more sexual partners, the better. Um, but again, going back to the reality that we have a good God who created us, he also created sex. He created Adam and Eve and he formed Eve out of Adam. And so the two were once one, and then he called them to be reunited, to have a reunion where they are one once again, and to be fruitful and to multiply. And so this unity that God has designed between men and women, again, is for one man and one woman in a, a lifelong relationship. Um, and when we take a step back from secular culture and from the constant messages that we receive through music and through movies, through our own social media feeds, and even just the message of our own flesh, um, you know, it's not all out there. It's also in here in the ways that we fall short in our thinking of sex. Um, but when we take time to really go into the word and understand God's design for sex, it's kind of mind blowing. In fact, I really can't, I can't say that I can wrap my mind around it fully. Um, you know, the apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he calls it a mega mysterion. And I could not agree more. It is super mysterious, but he says that marriage, meaning sex, the union of man, one man and one woman is meant to be a symbol of Christ and the church. And so what do we know about the way Christ loves the church. Well, we know that it's a perfect love and that Jesus will never leave us and never forsake us, that he will be committed forever to us. And so when we engage with multiple partners and we cheapen that symbol that the Lord designed to reflect him and his heart for the church, we really do violence to the image of God amongst us. We really, um, it's like, it's, it's so beyond just a sociological problem and a cultural taboo and a no, no in the church. Like this is, um, this is blasphemy. Really. It is attacking the character of God and doing harm to a good gift that he has given us. So, um, my desire in, in this book and in these chapters and for myself and for the reader is to just lift our eyes off of the landscape, the cultural landscape that has so cheapened sex and help us remember that mega mysterion of the Lord and um, his, un, you know, his limitless love and commitment to the church. And then remember, that's what he has called us to in our human relationships as well with his help and by his grace. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take the flip side and talk to the guys here for a second. Good. Yes. What you just, what you just said is so, so important. And the passage that you mentioned five times in the ESV and six times in the Koine and Greek were commanded as men to love our wives from the understanding that you just gave. And so you're, you're absolutely right. If you're not going to do that, it's, it's almost like Paul's saying, how can you even love, you know, him, you know, who bled and died and, um, presented himself blameless 
um, you know, but for the, for the sake of the church, it's like the answer. I mean, he, he doesn't give a direct answer to that there, but the answer is you can't like it shows it's the imperative has it. You have to show something, you know, because of what Christ has done. And that's what is Paul's trying to communicate. There is flowing out of our union with Christ. There should be something that we, we demonstrate. And if it's, there's no, you know, demonstration of that, where, where's, where's your heart really, you know, and it's, you know, if, if God says one time commands you to do something, you know, you better pay attention. If he does it again, you better really pay attention. If he does it five times, um, you, you better be like standing, you know, like you would before a general at, at full salute, you know, um, cause he's your commander and he's, he's giving you those, those orders. Yeah. So whenever I've told guys, you know, this kind of thing, they're like, huh, I never really thought of it that way before, but it's so, it's so important because you, you can't just say that you love your, love your spouse or love the Lord. And then you say, I love my spouse, but then your spouse doesn't see it. And it's convicting. It's a convicting thing that I don't think many men really think about to be, to be honest. And, and it, because we're so prone to go towards our, our own, all of us are myself included towards our own sufficiency, towards, towards trusting ourselves, walking in our own power. And we just have to realize, you know what? We can't, we can't do it. We can't do it. We have to have Christ and Christ's the one that, that gives us the fuel, the power to, to do this and to walk in his power. Yeah. So, amen. Yeah. Anyway, what most concerns you with the current abortion discussion and, and why? Yeah. So abortion is also in this book as one of the idols of our age, just that um, drive that we have to have choice and to be um, self-actualizing and to, to reach the identity that we have created for ourselves. So abortion is in there as well. I think there's a number of things that concern me, especially in this moment. Um, I do think it's very likely that Roe versus Wade is going to be turned over in this calendar year. And that's very good news. Anytime the laws of our nation reflect what is truly right and just and good, um, that is cause for celebration. Now, I don't think that that means our pro-life work will be over by any means. I think quite the opposite, that pro-life efforts are really going to actually have to get going um, mm. more than ever before when Roe v. Wade is turned over. Because what we're going to see is states then implementing statewide laws that make abortion more accessible and more available for longer amounts of time, um, you know, up through 40 weeks of gestation. Um, my own state of Colorado is one of the very few that provides abortion up through 40 weeks, even now. And so we're going to see these quote abortion sanctuary states all over the country. So California is already there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that really concerns me in terms of the abortion discussion inside the church is this. I would like to see the church no longer view the abortion debate as us versus them. I would like to see the church so entrenched in loving, vulnerable women in really practical, tangible ways so well that abortion becomes unthinkable and even in the eyes of our communities, unnecessary because the church has cared for marginalized women so well. Um, the statistics are overwhelming when it comes to abortion in terms of the number of women who, if they had received better support 
or understood their options better would not have chosen abortion. It's something like 80%, 85% of women, I'd have to go back to the book and look for the exact number, but something like 85% of women would not have aborted their babies if they had felt supported by their partners or felt like they had better options within their community. So I would love to see pro-life Christians really entrench themselves with women who currently view abortion as a better option for them and be so active in those communities as to have an understanding of why that is, why that woman feels that way, what her reality is like in her home and with her partner. Um, What I know because of my own pro-life work and counseling in pregnancy resource centers is that abuse is pervasive and that many women who choose abortion do so out of fear for their lives fear for their well-being, fear that they'll be kicked out. They're unemployed. They're women who are at risk of being hungry um, because of the loss of housing and stability and security. So in terms of the conversation inside the church, I just want to provoke Christians to become so acquainted with the grief of women who are vulnerable, that it is no longer an us versus them conversation, but a, we are one of you. How can we as a culture choose life together? Um, And then just one other thing that really concerns me in this moment is that medical abortion is only becoming more and more available. And medical abortion is a very specific kind of abortion. And it's, um, it's performed by ingesting two different medicines. So this is not the morning after pill. Um, and this is not the kind of abortion you receive by, by surgery, but it is ingesting two different med- medicines, which I go over in the book. Um, but these particular medications are available by mail. In fact, it, you can receive them via text message. You don't even necessarily have to see a doctor or nurse or any kind of abortion provider, but you can phone it in and receive these medications and then perform your own abortion at home. And the process is very risky. You know, it's sold by Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers as very low risk, as um, harmless in a way, you know, not painful, um, private, you know, you can sort of do it anonymously in the comfort of your own home. But again, the research is in the book and it's all over. It's easy to find online. Um, These processes are in fact, very harmful and very risky and um, extremely painful. So women are passing their unborn babies in their homes or in their dormitory bathrooms. And it's incredibly traumatizing. Um, Not only that, but women are dying because of this, because of things that go wrong, or they're becoming very, very sick. And not only that, but of course the mental and emotional fallout is significant. So I just look at that and go, you know, in what other, in what other place do we think that this is okay? In what other, you know, form of healthcare do we say, go home and take care of it yourself? Um, I just think it's incredibly negligent so I want, I want to help women see that and know that so that we can become champions of our daughters and sisters and friends and say, we're, we're in this with. You. No, I, uh, I think that is just, it's just tragic, you know, and I think it really, what you said really speaks to how, you know, how, how are a Roman in a Romans one way, how our culture has just continued to decline and, and fall more in love with itself. Um, like creature rather than the creator. Right. And I just think that it's, it's so sad. I, I remember taking moral philosophy in, in 98 and that they were championing, you know, of course, in a liberal 
community college in Seattle, they were championing, championing, um, you know, all of those things that, that they do. And it's just gotten so much worse. And I've just, I've just sat and watched and I'm like, none of that, none of that surprises me that it's, it's continued to get, you know, in a sad way, I, I, I laugh, but it's, I, I, I'm a sad because I've just sat and watched over now over 20 years later and just seen it just get worse in our culture. And some people think that we're somehow, you know, then improving as a society because people have supposed quote unquote rights and choices. And it's like, well, right. The, the choice to, to kill an innocent child in the womb is a choice and a right. And I've never, I've ne- that I, I can't, the only thing that I, that I go back to is, you know, the Bible, you know, we, we, we can't pretend to understand why some people do that other than, you know, they, their conscience are seared as Paul would say, and the God of this world has blinded their eyes. That that's the only thing, you know, if you try to go beyond that, trust me, uh, you're not going to find a better answer than that one. Um, and it's, that's tragic. And that's why, like you're saying, we have real work to do beyond just like saying the right things and making a stand. We, we actually have a real opportunity to stand for, for life. Um, and, from the womb to the tomb everywhere and to, you know, share Christ with real people. So I just want to say thank you for, for doing that. You know, it's a, like, I can't imagine being, I'd have friends that go and share at and go into those places. And that's not me, you know, probably would end up crying and weeping. And I'm sure you probably do too. And other people do, but I just, I just know that like, that's not me. My, I'll pray for people that do that, but, uh, I'm, I'm really thankful that you do that. So, yeah, I love how you put that, that we have a real opportunity and that is my hope with all of the idols that are uncovered in this book is, you know, I think in this cultural moment as Christians, it's really tempting to, um, want to be silent and want to be quiet because our values and the values that we see in scripture and, um, the way that our Lord champions life and wants to speak and protect life is considered backwards. You know, we're, we're seen as on the wrong side of history when it comes to all of these idols. And I just want to exhort and encourage Christians and to remind myself as well that we have the words of life. You know, Peter said to Jesus, where else would we turn Lord? You are the Holy one of God and you have the words of life. And that is just as true now as it was back when Peter said that to Jesus. Um, So let us not be ashamed and let us not be afraid, but let us realize that we are a bright light in the midst of a dark time. And um, to be encouraged by that, that these, the words of Christ, though, hard in many ways, because they are so contrary to our flesh and to our culture. They are the words of life and they have been drawing people to himself for millennia. And that's not going to stop now. So let us keep holding out the word of life. Mm, That's good stuff. How important is it that we have a good understanding of our identity in Christ? So we have a right understanding of what's happening regarding sexual ethics in our culture. Yeah. One thing that I really became just convicted of and encouraged by, as I wrote this book, um, you know, I continuously had to keep going back to Genesis one and two. And, you know, I think, I think it's tempting as a believer to sort of put the creation story in a box and put it on the shelf and just go, yeah, like we believe we're created and we know that that's what God did. So 
let me just shelve this and move on. But the reality is the truths in Genesis one and two speak so deeply and poignantly and specifically to the idols of our age, whether it's abortion or sex or the LGBTQ identity spectrum, um, God's design and the way he designed us speaks specifically to all of these issues. And so I just found, found myself like I need to take that box off the shelf and bring it back to the forefront of my mind and remember who God is and how he made us. Because I say this in enough about me, but I can't say it frequently enough is who we are is whose we are. You know, our identity has everything to do with who made us and who we belong to. Um, And especially as I was studying in Genesis one and two, you know, how the Lord created Adam from dust and pulled Eve out of his rib and then goes into, you know, breathe life into Adam's lungs and goes into the genealogy, the generations of the earth and God's people. And just the overwhelming truth that we belong to the Lord and we belong to each other. We are not our own. We have a maker. And not only that, we have a savior. So if we don't get our understanding of our identity in Christ right, if we don't have that foundation, then we will seek to be self-made and we will be quick to listen to the voices of our age that say the best way to be self-made, the best way to seek fulfillment and pleasure in this life is through myriad sexual identities or orientations, myriad sexual encounters, um, sexualizing yourself. Uh, Those are the messages that we're going to hear. And those will only further ensnare and further enslave and bring about death rather than life. So we will not be well. Um, There's a phrase that I use over and over in the book, and it is human well-being requires harmony with reality. So if we don't seek what's true and what's real, if we don't align ourselves with what's true, we will not be well. There's just no way around it. Mm. It's really good. And that, and that even goes back to like, don't ignore Genesis. Like, yes. You got to have a good understanding. If you want to have a good understanding of the rest of the Bible, you got to have a good understanding of the first 11 chapters of the Bible of Genesis. I mean, so, I mean, that's just really good. Well, what are your concerns about, you know, the purity movement? Yeah. So this book, Cultural Counterfeits, covers five idols of our age. And um, in case the listener does not know what they are, I'll just list them right now to, to start to answer this question. Um, they are, the first is the idol of outward beauty and ability, then cheap sex, then abortion, then the LGBTQIA spectrum of identities. And then the fifth idol is one that is probably going to be a surprise to most Christian readers. It's the hidden idol in the church of marriage and motherhood and the purity movements really closely connected to the specific idol. Now, let me start by saying purity, marriage, and motherhood are all good gifts. Like these are blessings. These are things that we should seek to attain with God's help, you know, as we seek to live out his will and his calling on our, on our lives, what he's doing in and through each one of us. But um, I think what has happened, in fact, I actually last night had, um, I'm going through this book with the women of my church. And so last night we were just discussing this idol. So less than 12 hours ago, this is really fresh on my brain. Um, 
But what happened, I think, is that as the sexual revolution began to revolutionize Western culture, and as it put forth sex as our highest good and throwing off the, quote, shackles of traditional marriage and roles, um, the church rightfully fought back. And the church rightfully said, no, we want to protect sex. We want to protect marriage. We want to protect children and fatherhood and motherhood. Um, and we want to, you know, we want to teach our people, our youth, our families um, to really preserve these good things. I think what happened, the sort of unforeseen consequence is for many of us, a certain sort of moralistic behaviorism was taught rather than prioritizing a relationship with Jesus. So last night when I'm sitting there talking to 20 different women who grew up in 20 different places and 20 different churches, for those who grew up in the church, and it's most of them, the resounding, you know, sort of unanimous reply to this specific question, you know, what about the purity movement, is that it really taught them to prioritize behavior over a relationship with the Lord. And it taught them that there is a sort of transaction that you can make in this life. And they felt that they were taught um, by youth pastors and by that particular moment in history of the nineties and early two thousands, that if you save yourself for marriage, then you will have a great marriage and great kids, great sex, a great future. So if you behave properly, if you do the right thing, if you perform, then God will pay you back for that and he'll give you a reward. And so there was just a lot of grief in that room last night as women just shared what they're, what they continue to walk through, you know, decades later, some of them in marriages now for 10 to 20 years, as they continue to try to sort of sort out that transactional way of living that they were um, taught to pursue. And so um, what my hope is, is that is to just help the reader remember that Jesus is after our hearts, that he is after our devotion, mm -hmm. that he is for us, that he loves us immeasurably and unconditionally. And that out of that, um, out of a heart of gratitude for our salvation, out of a place of security and knowing that I am an adopted daughter of God and he loves me no matter what I have done, as Jesus' blood covers it, then I can walk with him and abide in him and relate to him in the way that he intended. Mm. Um, there's just so many women in the room last night and all over the country who feel like, you know, they've, they've committed sins that cannot be forgiven, that they are now tarnished and unacceptable. Um, and so, and then in the flip side of that then has been sort of this placing of motherhood and marriage on a pedestal where it, it doesn't belong. And so in this chapter, I just try to rem remind the reader um, that these things belong to the Lord and may we seek him and may we abide in him and see what his calling is for each of our lives. It's mm, really, really good. <laughs> There's a lot there. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. You know, I'm just thinking about like high school uh, and stuff for me, you know, and we, when we, they taught expositionally through the Bible and. We even learned systematic theology as a junior in high school, which was, you know, like digesting that with a you know junior high school or as a junior in high school was was challenging, like, you know, um, but like 
we had a high standard for relationships and you know later on that kind of i went away from that and went into a period of rebellion and i could see i could see both sides growing up in the church and then doing what i what i did and and getting enslaved pornography for uh, a little while and um it's it's tragic you know but but we also have to come back on the other side and say god does have standards right for Absolutely. for our for our behavior and i and i know you're not saying that that that's not the case but some people you know really bristle at that and in, in the church and of course you have to explain it you know we were adopted and we're loved by god and god has expectations for you know um for why he wants us to live this this way and I think that's really helpful, especially for, you know, as I talk to guys is, hey, you have a new, you have new, there's a lot of baggage, like you said, with, with men and, and I'm sure with women, and we just have to remind them, this is who you belong to. You know, this is like you said, whose we are, and we have a new identity, and the Holy Spirit is going to go to work there, and it's going to address those real, like you're saying, identity issues, and I, I yeah. think what you said is really, really good. And we, we could probably talk a long time about that. So, yeah, whenever I talk about that final idol, which hopefully, you know, hopefully the listeners just hearing, you're only hearing a teeny taste of what that chapter has to say. So if any of it sounds really awkward or questionable, please check out the book and see what the whole chapter has to say. But when I talk about it with other women who are um, leading women's ministry, who are teaching the Bible, who are robust theologians in the church, you know, respected voices, um, they say, oh gosh, you could have written a whole book just on that idol. The ways that we, um, as the church have put marriage and motherhood on a pedestal where they don't belong, um, rather than just cherishing Jesus again, not pursuing a particular identity or role, but pursuing Christ and being pursued by Christ and really valuing, um, who we are in Christ more than what specific temporary role he has given us in this lifetime. That's good. Your next, your next book. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So how does our desire for peace and knowing that we are right where we're supposed to uh, be speak to our desire for home? Yeah. I think it is the human condition to desire peace and stability and home. You know, we, we were made for home. It's no, um, mistake or um, weird thing that we all desire the comfort and the warmth of home because our God made us that way. Our God designed us to desire a homecoming and a warm embrace of the father. So throughout the book, I constantly weave through the parable of the prodigal son, as well as the role of the older brother in that particular story. And my hope throughout the book is to just continuously remind the reader that you do desire fulfillment because God made you that way. You do desire a homecoming and a feast and to be satisfied because God made you that way. But the only place you're really going to find it is at the table of the father and that he has set a place for you. And there will always, always be a place for you at his table. Um, so the, the fact we, you know, we all desire that we all want to go home. We all want to have peace, but the truth is we will not find it in this lifetime or at the hands of these idols. 
but we find it in the father and he's preparing that feast even now. And so I hope um, for myself and for readers that we will just anticipate that homecoming and live in light of it, live in light of the feast that the father has prepared and know that it awaits. Mm, Really, really good. Well, where can people go to find out more about you on social media or otherwise? Yeah, I'm just known as Jen Oshman about just about everywhere. Um, I have a website, jenoshman.com. Also Jen Oshman on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. You can go and check her out, guys. Well, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about. And just as we wrap up, and as I always say, you know, really it is, we're really only scratching the surface on all these conversations. Uh, So just go ahead and give us a few takeaways. Yeah, I would love for the reader to understand two things. One is that nothing is beyond the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Um, I think as we read about these idols, none of us is unscathed. None of us um, can say that we haven't contributed or in some way dined at the table of these idols, whether it's in a small way or a really huge way. And so I just want to remind the reader that nothing is beyond God's forgiveness. He stands ready, you know, like the father, as he watched the prodigal, he's watching us while we're yet a long way off and is eager to embrace us. And then for those of us who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of the father. And so even as we sort of peel back the ugliness of our cultural moment and the destruction of these idols, I want the reader to be overwhelmed by God's mercy and grace and sovereignty. He he, his light outweighs the darkness. And, um, so I just pray that the reader is really encouraged and that that subtitle we were made for so much more is what would really resonate in the hearts of readers when they close the cover to that book. Mm, That's really good, Jen. Well, guys, we've been talking today with my friend, Jen, and she is the author of a great new book, cultural counterfeits confronting five empty promises of our age and how we were made for so much more. Jen, thank you so much for your time today and for writing this great book and your ministry. Thank you so much, Dave, for taking time to talk with me about it. I appreciate you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.